a very good morning to you. We are live in London and in Zurich and you're with Monocle on Sunday. Welcome. I'm Emma Nelson and coming up on today's programme, my guests Chandra Kurt in Zurich and Latika Burke in London will be going through the weekend's biggest stories. Good morning, Latika. What's caught your eye? Good morning, Emma. There's no going past the front page of the Sunday Times. They've done an explosive and lengthy investigation into China's influence over the WHO. China, the WHO and the power grab that fueled a pandemic will be taking a closer look at that story and exploring the first alcohol-free bar to open in Ireland. Thank you very much indeed. Matt Wolf, also theatre critic from the International New York Times, will round up the week's culture news for us. And we'll be joined by Enrico Franceschini from La Repubblica to hear more about what's in his paper this weekend. It's the 15th of August 2021, live from London. This is Monocle on Sunday. First, a quick look at the day's main news headlines. At least 300 people are now known to have died in a powerful earthquake in Haiti. The Taliban now controls every major Afghan city except for the capital, Kabul. And Poland's president has signed a bill to limit the ability of Jews to recover property seized by Nazi German occupiers and retained by post-war communist rulers. That's a look at the headlines. Very good morning to Latika Burke. And a very good morning to you, Chandra Kurt. Latika, how are you doing? Good morning, Emma. A very nice Sunday here in London. A bit cloudy, but still very warm. There's no such thing as a nice Sunday in London in the <laughs> middle of summer. It's grey and miserable. It always is. And Chandra Kurt, keeping the fires burning at Dufourstrasse 90 for us this morning. Good morning. How, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Emma. Well, I'm a bit lonely here. I'm, I'm missing <laughs> people around me, but I'm very honoured to, to, to take their place and to try to make some sense. Well, we'll do our best for the next 60 minutes to try to make some sense. <laughs> What's the view from Dufourstrasse 90 this morning, apart from, a, apart from a solitary one? It's finally, you know, it's summer in Zurich, it's warm. Um, this night was very hot to sleep, so so it, it is finally summer here too. I mean, there's been quite a lot of... Um, uh, quite a lot made of the fact that you've had a very rainy summer and that the uh, that the barbecues and the bodies have been having a terrible, terrible time and the, and the, and the museums have been making money hand over fist because that's the yeah. only thing that people are doing. I mean, what, what are you up to? What can people be doing in a, in, on a rainy summer in Zurich given the fact that so much is dependent on sitting outside and dipping a toe in the lake? You know, I just met last last week the director of the zoo of Zurich and um, we had lunch together and he told me the zoo didn't work as well as, as for, for many months before because, you know, bodies, you couldn't go. So all the families went to see the zoo and the zoo Zurich is one of the most important zoos on the planet, I think, next to next to um, San Diego and, and Singapore. So the zoo was booming. So you go to the zoo. Been to the zoo recently, Latika? I have not been to a zoo. I must say, I'm I'm one of these people who has, as I get older, becomes deeply uncomfortable with the concept of a zoo. I'm I'm really not into them. Not a good. How about I, I think it's very odd to see, like in Sydney, for example, we have Taronga Zoo. I don't think it's right to see a giraffe with the Harbour Bridge in the background. <laughs> One does not belong there. I don't know, the giraffe might find it rather exciting. <laughs> I know that we, we have this thing in, in London that um, the giraffe section of London Zoo has... Um, is placed just by the road. I mean, not to the point where, the, you know, the giraffes are going to be kept up at night yeah. by passing traffic and lorries and what have you, but set back a little and it's a quietish road. But it means that when you walk down the road, you you see the giraffes. I mean, you see the giraffes really up close and it's one of those, you know, when you play those games, you know, tell tell three things, one of which is a lie and one of which is a truth about yourself. And I say, when I go for a run, I see giraffes because it is that wonderful thing that you can just go for a walk 
and see a giraffe. Do you have that kind of thing in Zurich, um, Chandra, or do you have mm. to? Is it, are they all hidden behind closed doors? Not really. You have the penguins. I think that they, the famous <laughs> penguin walk that you can follow them or they follow you. But in the zoo Zurich, there's something amazing. There's an elephant called Chandra. Can you imagine? <laughs> um, so, so, so if you, <laughs> and the story is even more crazy because my father was a professor for, for Asian elephants and I grew up in the jungle a little bit and I don't really like so much animals. I prefer to be among grapes and bottles. Mm. So, so but, but a few years ago, the this elephant had a, got, got a baby and they looked for a name and they called it Chandra and, and, and then I, I created a little children book called My Name is Chandra the Elephant and it's a little Chandra me that speaks with this little elephant and it's, it's a really half true story that elephant actually wants to go back to India and I don't want to go back to India because I prefer the, the cities and the, let's say the urban life Where can we get this book Chandra? I can send it over. Thank it's even you. in English. Can you send a dispatch as well as a bottle of the latest grape and bottle thing that you've I been doing? Do um, actually, Chandra, you have been on your travels this week, haven't you? Where have you been? So I did again a little bit the movement. Um, I went to Venice and I went to Rome and I enjoyed uh, the kitchen of Italy and the wines of Italy and also that that right now everybody's more on the beach so the cities were not so full. Um, this is one thing that Latika and I were talking about before we came on air, which is Italy is a is a sort of spiritual home for so many people and yet we can't get there at the moment. The, the, for whatever reason, uh, it's tougher than ever to get to Italy. Um, who is going to Italy at the moment? I mean, clearly you can hop across the border. You can, I'm assuming you fly, do you take a train? Is, is there a feeling that actually that, that Italy is now happily open for business and the kitchen is open too? Well, the kitchens, they are waiting. You know, they love to cook and they love to serve and they love when they see somebody that eats a lot. They even bring more, so this makes them initially happy. Um, you have a lot of Americans that, that were traveling. Of course, you have you have uh, from, from, from Switzerland, from Germany. Um, but, but it's still, you know, it, it's not yet full. And, 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 uh, but, but I think some Americans are there. Okay. Latika, you've been on your travels as well. You're, you're back from Malta off to France and you're saying that it's easier to travel now this year. No, so it was easier to travel last year yeah. when there were no vaccines and COVID was ra- you know, raging around everywhere than it is this year. It seems kind of surreal looking back. I went away three times last year. One of the best trips I did was to Puglia in Italy and I'd never been there before and it was just absolutely fantastic. The wine was so great. Uh, the food was excellent. Um, and I would love to get back to Italy this year because I'd really like to see Venice in particular and Pompeii when there are not so many tourists. But I'm quite worried that by the time they let the British back in, it's it's going to be um, a period where all the tourists are back in. So I would love to see Italy while it's a bit quieter. But yes, Malta was full of British people. So <laughs> it was very lovely to go to Malta and be away in the warmth. But I must say it did feel like the whole of the UK had descended on Malta. Okay, we might leave it there actually at that point. I think, I think my mind is moving more back to Venice and Puglia and whatever. Um, wine, wine expert, editor of the Wine Cellar Journal, grape and, grape and glass guru, uh, Chandra. If, uh, if, if uh, Latika were to be jumping on, hopping on a plane to the Veneto region this afternoon, where, she should, she, where should she head for a good glass of wine? Well, of course, and it's know, great that go to Venice, but don't forget your green pass because when you enter the restaurants in Italy now, you have to show the green pass, and uh, otherwise, you you know they don't let you in. Even in the airport, in the lounge, they don't let you in. I've been, I, you know, I heard the rumor that Harry's Bar is closed, but then I said it cannot be. This institution cannot be closed. So we went there, and she was open. And the Bellini still costs 19 euro per glass, <clears> and is <throat> s- small as always. But uh, but still, it's nice to be there. <laughs> 
How small are we talking? Well, a big sip. <laughs> one and a half sip. One and a half sip. And that's it? And that's it. And, it's, wor- know, and it's worth it's- it? Of course, of course it's worth it. Of, of course, course it's of worth course. it. It's we of do course. you do it just for half a sip, I think. I remember yeah, yeah. I remember the eye watering prices for a bill, um uh for um an aperol in Rome a couple of years ago and I remember coming with like half a day's wages being spent over three aperols and just thinking that's the best money I've ever spent in my <laughs> life. I wonder I wonder Letica, if I got my priorities right. <laughs> well, this is what I loved about the south of Italy actually was your money goes so far. The drinks are so good. The food is is excellent and it's all very very cheap compared to Rome. I must say Rome is not one of my favorite cities. Ah, right. You now have to leave my city. Sorry. Uh, but you found, how did you find Rome uh, how did you find Rome um uh, Chandra? I I loved it because uh, you know I, I love to be in the cities and I discovered there is a post that they created for for um, people that don't see for the blind people so you can just follow something in, in easy to see in the street and you get without thinking to all the monuments of Rome. So we did this this walking early in the morning and you know suddenly you stand in front of Fontana di Trevi or the, the Spanish step and there are hardly people and, and you know it well, it's there are beautiful monuments and it's it's historic and it has tradition and, and I needed this, you know, it's like energy and it's like vitamins to to see that. This is it. Energy and vitamins. Travel is getting mm. more and more like that. I mean, I went I went on a five day break a couple of weeks ago, and normally you demand I demand like two weeks completely switch off, don't talk to anybody, the whole thing. I find five days was actually as refreshing as a two week break because there was something really magical about travel this year, wasn't there, Latika? I had the exact same experience, Emma. It's so funny you say that. I went for four nights and it felt like a week. It's brilliant. And Chandra, you've, that's, this is, you haven't stopped travelling throughout the whole of the pandemic, have you? Gra- grapes don't wait for a pandemic, do they? No, no, when I had, I, it was not so easy. You know, I never <laughs> cancelled and rebooked and cancelled and rebooked. But, you know, when it was possible, I, I did. And uh, um, because the grapes, like you say, they're, they're growing and the wines are produced. So you have to go and see. And wonderful. Right. Uh, let's have a look at some of the papers. It's uh, ten past nine here in London. Um, a huge story on the front page, Latika, of the Sunday Times, isn't it? China, the World Health Organization and the power grab that fueled a pandemic. Um, there's been quite a lot of discussion, hasn't there, about just how much influence or authority the World Health Organization has in China when it when it was allowed eventually to get into China to examine whether um, where the COVID source was, there were all manner of things that were were delaying the inspectors from coming in. Once they got there, they weren't allowed to see key sites. The wet market, which everybody was saying was the was the source of the of the outbreak of the pandemic, had been destroyed. Long, long, long ago, but mm. now the Sunday Times has a big expose, doesn't it, on the on the on this internal power grab, trying to trying to work out what it is that China did to, to sort of effectively sit on the World Health Organization. Yes, I mean you can hear the papers rustling there, and that's because this in, enormous investigation that the Sunday Times has done uh, starts on page one. It's above the fold, fills the whole of that top page, and then opens up for page six and seven, and and fills the entirety of those two pages. Now, oh, actually, and it goes on to page eight. So this is an enormous piece of work. And the benefit in something like this is there's a lot in there, as you say, of of those themes we have all been discussing for the last year and a half as to how this pandemic came about. Could it have been prevented? And worse, was it something that was actually uh, intentionally covered up from the Chinese and perhaps with the aiding and abetting of the WHO? Well, what the Sunday Times does is pick up all of these threads 
it weaves them all together. But laced in here are some really, really interesting new details. And we have some incredible detail on the investigation uh, that was conducted into the origins of the coronavirus. Now, this is extremely important for countries like Australia, which called for this investigation, only to have China turn its fury on Australia and impose billions of dollars in in trade tariffs in uh, retribution. And what the Sunday Times has found is that actually this investigation was watered down in a backroom deal between WHO officials and the Chinese on the ground into a, a study. And that basically when they went into the Wuhan Institute of Virology, the lab that uh, many in the US have put forward as the source of, of a lab-leaked virus rather than one that just occurred between animals and humans at the, um, at the seafood market, uh, that when they went in, they just uh, took at face value what uh, the people in that lab told them and, and walked back out. And there's this great quote that says, it wasn't doing nothing, but it was the closest to doing nothing that you could come come to. The other really important and interesting thread here we have is about who leads the WHO and how those positions are elected. And what this Sunday Times piece uh, maps out is that back when SARS happened, there was a, a very forthright head of the WHO and a former Norwegian prime minister who really took China to town about not being forthcoming in their information and helping the world get on top of that virus sooner than it might. So fast forward a couple of years and a couple of candidates, the Sunday Times puts together a very compelling argument that, that China has installed uh, in subsequent um, two, two of its candidates, including Dr Tedros, who, who now leads the WHO. He is a former Ethiopian, Ethiopian health minister. And that even though China's funding to the WHO is, is relatively quite small compared to, say, the USA, what they do is that they strike lots of bilateral health deals with smaller countries, particularly in Africa. And then when the time comes, they lobby intensively those smaller states to get their candidates into these influential positions. And what happened was that under one of their former preferred candidates, Margaret Chan, the election system of how to actually nominate the WHO Director-General changed from a very small group of WHA Assembly members to a FIFA-style uh, competition where all those smaller nations get equal say. And, of course, we know what happened with FIFA and uh, how Sepp Blatter, uh, the former president there, was, was elected and, and kept in that position despite claims of widespread corruption there. So this is a, a huge piece. I would highly recommend it, Emma. It's the sort of, sort of reason why you, on a Sunday, go and buy the paper you read it over breakfast and a cup of coffee and you come away maybe 30 minutes later thinking, I learnt a stack in that piece. It's astonishing. I mean, One of the examples that's given early on in terms of the just how close the WHO and the Chinese authorities were comes quite early in the, in the piece where it says, as hospitals were flooded with patients in Wuhan in January 2020, the health agency, WHO, repeatedly relayed to the world the Chinese government's false claims that there was no evidence the virus could pass between humans. It made a specific point of cautioning countries not to impose bans on travel to and from virus hotspots, which meant that many weeks were lost before countries independently decided to seal their borders. The WHO's approach ensured that China's short-term economic prospects were protected. Meanwhile, the virus was allowed to spread around the globe like wildfire. So many accusations there. Is there any indication, though, however, in the aftermath of this, that um, the WHO has 
got sharper teeth because much of this in, of this this article also focuses on the investigation and how it, a lot of the vital information just never mm. came out. Well, no, the WHO has been shown to be completely weak when it comes to this. And in fact, one of the reasons the WHO gives in this article as to why Dr Tedros was continually praising China so much for the last 18 months was because uh, they needed to get China's permission to let their investigative team actually enter the country. Um, and this is something that Australia said really early on, that actually those powers should be equivalent to a UN's uh, weapons inspector. And this is something that Helen Clark, the former New Zealand Prime Minister who headed up the review into this, uh, she actually backed and endorsed that. So we all know that through no fault of the current people running the WHO, the WHO does not have the powers it needs to actually really get to the bottom of something like where did coronavirus come from, who was responsible and was it covered up. Uh, but that doesn't mean either that the WHO had to be as forthcoming in its praise of China and potentially delaying in calling a public health emergency and uh, and uh, really playing down human-to-human -human transmission for critical days. Imagine what might have been different if this had just been contained in Wuhan. I don't think we even want to begin to think about it, but it is how it is now. And we have this issue now about about the world's trust in the WHO. I mean, Donald Trump, perhaps for all the wrong reasons, had no faith in the WHO and, 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 and took action appropriately. But what does this now mean for, for the rest of the world? Because the rest of the world obviously had to step in if, if these Sunday Times allegations are correct and we don't have the WHO on the line to give their response. Um, but the fact remains that, that Beijing had to alter it, the course of its behaviour, not because of the WHO, but because of how the rest of the world reacted to China. Yeah, I, I think this is the really crucial point here. Trump actually showed why the rest of the world needs to form better alliances on these sorts of things, because it's something we're also seeing in Afghanistan. You actually can't rely on America any, anymore to be that person at the top leading these drives. Um, the Trump administration was, of course, extremely erratic. But many of the things it did, including putting forward this idea that the virus may have leaked from the lab, that China covered it up because of that, that's actually been taken forward by the Biden administration. And we have seen this renewed focus on the lab leak theory precisely because it's not Donald Trump and not Mike Pompeo saying it. It's the Biden administration and his new national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, also pushing it. And so... Yes, America is stable at the moment. There is renewed focus and interest. I think it's very unlikely we'll ever get to the source of this virus. The investigation was left extremely late. Uh, China has already said it won't cooperate with any second study. Um, no, we're not using the word investigation there. So it doesn't look like we're going to have really much truth come out of this. But, of course, there is a next time. There will be a next time, just as Dr Tedros warned uh, when he took on this job before the outbreak of, of the coronavirus pandemic that there would be a, a pandemic looming. Um, maybe he didn't know it would be on his watch and that he would be caught up in this, this global catastrophe. 
You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson, joined in London by Latika Burke and in Switzerland at Dufourstrasse 90 in a bureau in Zurich by Chandra Kurt. Um, it's just coming up to 10.20 if you are in, uh, if you're listening in Zurich. Chandra, we'll, we'll head to you because um, it's a subject that possibly we don't talk about enough, which is um, climate change and the effect on your industry. Um, what has been happening to the vineyards across Europe at the moment as the fires blaze, the temperatures rise, um, but also we had this devastating frost earlier this year. It, you know, there's there's genuine impact being felt across the industry, isn't there? Yeah, tremendously. <clears throat> and it started also last year already with the fires in California. And you had again fires in California. And uh, in, in Australia, for example, you don't have enough water. So, so, so the vineyards, are, you know, they need some water. And now in Germany, with all this flooding in the R region, you know, the whole village and, and the whole kellers, they were like, like flushed away. And it's, it's heartbreaking to see what, what happened there. And, and, and these are like, the, let, let's see, fast impacts or, or things with an immediate um, um, result. But what is happening more, 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 more complex is, is that the temperature are changing. So meaning in, in regions where certain grapes needed a certain temperature to fully mature or or, or if give the perfect taste, they maybe don't fit anymore, or it gets too warm, or exactly don't have water. So there's a, a global reshift that slowly started of, of vineyards, of, of distribution of grapes. And, and imagine what, what an implication this gives if you have um, like these, um, I would say, which are the, the government regulated kind of wines that need the specific grape to be called this and this wine. So suddenly they cannot grow these grapes anymore. So, so a lot of, of, of rethinking, redoing so will have to happen in the next year. And just, I mean, there are two issues that you've raised here, which is the immediate impact of, of, of climate events such as frost and heat mm-hmm. on on grapes and regions but then you have the longer term which you're talking about that you know whether a grape is 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 still growing in the right place or whether the place is right for the grape it, it's one of those balances but this year in particular we i mean what is going to be coming out of the 2021 vintage given the fact that Italy and France had this terrible frost, and I think the frost took out 90% of some of the crops in France, didn't it? Yeah, exactly. And then in Germany, you mentioned floods. So, so just take it, take us on a bit of a, <laughs> a sort of a disaster wine tour, Chandra, and tell us and tell us, you know, what's going to be happening in each region and what we might be putting in our bottles next year. No, no. I mean, the, the beautiful thing is that you find wine a little bit all over. So, so, so there will be regions that have less wines, and, and what can happen there is that the prices go up, that or that that the only the like the basic quality of the wine is produced and not the high quality wine, and. Um, some some regions they do nice things they 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 create in moments like this uh, for example there was something in North Italy they buy from the neighbor region grapes and create a, a new wine that is like a SOS wine so so some some helping projects are are born out of catastrophes but of course it's it's um it's it, it's part of the wine industry always was because you know you depend on the weather and you 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 cannot you don't know till the till the wine is in the bottle how how if you make it or not because be, if a harvest happens something the whole um, harvest can also be destroyed so this is for example why i could never do myself wine i don't have the nerves for this <laughs> you start every year from 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 zero again and I mean, am I right in thinking that I mean, we're talking about the longer term prospects? I think I read somewhere that if you are in Burgundy, which is possibly one of the most delicate places on earth where you can where you can grow wine, that it is that the harvest now takes place two weeks earlier than it did when everything started in the 14th century. So we're seeing a, a, a huge change in the way that wine is produced over over the years. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and this is this is also it. You have to be. You know, you cannot. Wine is old and then something you can hold really in your hands. So because it will it will shift, you have to be flexible to adopt. But for example, in in Switzerland, we will the, some harvest will be only in October. So it 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 already shifted to be later. So it you know it's really difficult to have a formula how it's going to be. So, Latika, in the middle of your, your wine-loving trips... So Latika is a wine-lover, by the way, and we're going to Chandra, we're going to have a little game about with the, the usual Chandra, Chandra wine advice uh, <laughs> game this morning. Um, I mean, this is brilliant news if you're in Kent and Sussex and you want to make sparkling wines to to you know, put the put the French champagne producers' teeth on edge. Um, but, I mean, it is a serious business, isn't it? Yeah, and this is something that Australian wine um, growers, as, as Chandra was referencing there, is have been across for many years now because we've had vintages uh, ruined by bushfires, by floods, um, then by the warmer temperatures. And, of course, that's a new normal that many Australian wine operators are, are operating under. Um, but, Chandra, I wanted to ask you, is there any uh, particular variety that actually improves as a result of climate change? Do we know? You know? <clears throat> there is not yes and no in 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 a wine question, but what <laughs> what is happening? I'm I would love that there are, but there are not. Uh, that there are new grapes like created that, for example, have a have a thicker skin or 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 better for 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 a certain humidity, and um, you, you really it's it's like um, it's like different food that that fits with different um, wines together. So so you you cannot have one answer for this. Okay, mm. uh, quick question. Actually, so the the, the Chandra Kurt uh, wine game. Uh, if you've uh, if you if you're familiar with this, you will know full well that we will give Chandra um, a, a question that she has to come up with a nice wine to go with uh, what we're having this weekend for for dinner. Um, so, Latika, in the Burke house, household, what's coming up on the menu this afternoon? Are you heading out into the grey into a grey park <laughs> to to enjoy some of the cloud, or what are you doing this weekend? And what are you cooking? And Chandra, uh, you know what to do. You stand by. And you give us give us the answers at the end of the at the end of the program. Okay, so Chandra, this is a particular um, quiz for you because I'm making one of my favourite dishes, which is an Australian recipe, very Asian in flavour. It's salt and pepper prawns um, using white ground pepper. It's got lemongrass in it, red and green bird's eye chilies, and some spring onions that get mixed in at the very end. So it's it's nice and hot, but not not too fiery. But my question for you is, I only really like to drink red wine. So what sort of red wine would you match with that rather than a white wine? Chandra, you've been given a bit of a game there. You're right, you're right to come back to us at the end of the programme with it. <laughs> yes, yes. Wonderful. Com- She's sounding confident, Latika. She Don't sounds very it. confident. <laughs> <laughs> you're listening to Monogland Sunday with me, Emma Nelson, joined by Latika Burke and Chandra Court. Now, throughout the Olympics, we heard dispatches from our correspondent inside the bubble at Tokyo 2020, Kieran Pender. The Games may have concluded last Sunday, but his Olympic journey has not. He filed this final report from us from a different bubble, his hotel quarantine in Australia. The 2020 Tokyo Olympics are finally over. They may have been a year late, well over budget and watched on by empty stadiums, but the very fact that the Games took place in the middle of a pandemic was in itself a remarkable achievement. Last Sunday, Tokyo 2020 was formally brought to a close with an upbeat closing ceremony. In a nod to the initial Olympic Games of ancient Greece, the marathon runners were the last to receive their medals. Ladies and gentlemen, the victory ceremony for the women's marathon. 
International Olympic Committee President Thomas Barsch gave a typically drawn-out speech while the French celebrated the passing of the baton to them, with the 2024 Olympics in Paris now just three years away. Although a live video crossed to a crowded celebration in central Paris after the Japanese had been shut out of their games was perhaps a touch insensitive. The Japanese are now counting down the days to the Paralympics, which begin in just a week and a half's time, albeit again expected to be held behind closed doors. But the Olympic journey is not over for everyone, and certainly not for me. Australia sent just shy of 500 athletes to Tokyo, plus another 1,500 coaches, officials and journalists. Ever since Australia cut itself off from the world last year to halt the spread of COVID-19, the small number of travellers permitted into the country have been required to spend two weeks in a hotel in mandatory quarantine. That means that every Australian to return home from Tokyo has a 14-day detour in a state-run hotel facility. Despite every single person in the Olympic bubble being tested daily for COVID-19, not to mention the fact that almost every member of Australia's Olympic delegation has been double-jabbed with a vaccine, there were no exemptions. While some Australian athletes chose to head straight for Europe or North America for other competition, the remainder have returned home for a two-week holiday in self-isolation. A quiet wave from behind a mask. They touched down in Darwin just after five o'clock this morning, the first chartered flight of returning athletes in the top end, filing through border security before boarding buses destined for quarantine. So that's where I currently find myself, in a hotel in central Sydney. I'm fortunate to have a nice view of Sydney Harbour and the iconic Opera House, plus direct sunshine for most of the morning. Three times a day a meal is delivered to my door, and over the next two weeks I'll also be tested for COVID on several occasions. Otherwise, it's in this room I stay, with just my memories of the past three weeks at Tokyo 2020 for company. For a small subset of Olympians, their stint in confinement has just got worse. Australia, which is divided up into eight different state and territories, is currently battling a resurgent COVID outbreak. One of the states, South Australia, has managed to effectively isolate itself from the rest of the country and keep the latest outbreak out. Earlier this week, the state government told South Australian Olympians currently quarantining in Sydney that they would have to do another two weeks in isolation on their return home. Well, Olympians from South Australia will have to quarantine for 28 days in a decision condemned by the AOC. 16 athletes already isolating in Sydney will be required to do the same for another fortnight when they arrive home. But it is not all bad news for Australia's Olympians in quarantine. Many have taken to Instagram to share their experiences and even ask fans to send them extra food. Uber Eats deliveries are permitted, with guards at the front desk ferrying things to each guest's door. Australian sprinter Riley Day was so deluged with gifts after her social media request that she had to post a follow-up. 
I really appreciate everyone's generosity and you mean the world to me, but I'll have to ask everyone to kindly stop sending me things because the people downstairs are super busy helping us quarantine safely. Love you all. I can't say I have been deluged with gifts in hotel quarantine, but then again, I haven't just run, swum or otherwise competed for my country. The Australian Olympic Committee has also planned a program of virtual activities for Australia's Olympians as they wait out their days in quarantine, ranging from guest talks, a trivia night and a dance party. As the promo reads, it's time to dance like nobody's watching. With 10 days of my stay here remaining, I may be tempted to join in. For Monocle, in a hotel room in Sydney, I'm Kieran Bender. Thank you very much indeed, Kieran. Um, Latika listening to that fellow Australian hold up in a hotel, and you just quietly just went, this is nuts. <laughs> well, the double quarantine um, requirement between Sydney and South Australia has gone down uh, like a lead balloon. But, you know, Australia has a, obviously a very, very strict um, no-tolerance policy towards coronavirus, and they're now battling their biggest outbreak they've had since last year, and uh, about half the country's currently locked down, and I think will probably stay that way until they get the entire country vaccinated now. OK. It's 9.33 here in London. You're with uh, me, Emma Nelson, and Monocle on Sunday. We'll be back in a moment. Marriott Bonvoy is proud to partner Monocle on Sunday on Monocle 24. As a global leader in hotels covering the globe from cool urban vibes to the most luxurious retreats, whatever your travel style, Marriott has the perfect place for you. One such location is the Ritz-Carlton Kyoto, which sits serenely on the banks of the Kamagawa River with sweeping views of the mountains. Located in the heart of a city famed for its beautiful temples, palaces and gardens, the Riverside Resort brings the unsurpassed elegance and renowned service of the Ritz-Carlton to Kyoto while honouring the extraordinary cultural heritage of the city through design. Simon Finch is the Ritz-Carlton Kyoto's loyalty manager and he's here to share some of his favourite spots to visit in Kyoto. Here's Simon. And first up is the Diamonji. Diamonji is a mountain very close to the Ritz-Carlton. You can see it from the actual windows. They also have a festival every year on the 16th of August where the whole mountains are lit up with bonfires. To get to Diamonji, it's only a 15-minute cycle and then a one-hour hike up the actual mountain. And when you do get to where they have the bonfires for this festival, you will see picturesque views of Kyoto, an absolutely brilliant, wonderful place. Simon Finch, the Ritz-Carlton Kyoto's loyalty manager, sharing his favourite places to visit in Kyoto. Discover more compelling and enriching experiences across 30 distinct brands with Marriott Bonvoy at marriott.com. Marriott Bonvoy, proud partner of Monocle on Sunday on Monocle 24. in Rome, 9.35 here in London. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson. Let's continue with a look at what's making headlines in Italy's La Repubblica. Uh, I'm joined on the line by its London correspondent, Enrico Franceschini. Good morning, Enrico, and buon ferragosto. Good morning, Emma. Buon ferragosto to you. How much are you dreaming of being on an Italian beach and not in rainy London? Um, I've dreamt about it all night, (laughs) uh, but... uh, 
I woke up in grey London. What can I do? I'm sorry about this. Um, we'll come to Ferragosta in a moment because tell us what's in your paper at the moment. I mean, you when you look at the front page of La Repubblica, it's pretty much covering the same thing, which is this just absolute collapse of the Afghan government in the face of Taliban fighters who are basically going into towns and cities now with absolutely zero resistance. Yes, well, the latest news is they're entering Kabul uh, as we speak. Uh, there is a bit of news in La Repubblica today about this uh, terrible event uh, that uh, a small scoop, perhaps, uh, that apparently a few months ago, the Italian government and the British government during a, a NATO meeting in Brussels uh, um, started to... Uh, oppose the decision of the United States to withdraw completely from uh, Afghanistan and even started to talk about themselves how to uh, try to support uh, with their own forces uh, the Afghan government. They, they uh, apparently looked for uh, help from Germany, France and other European countries. Uh, that was not forthcoming. So in the end, the project uh, didn't go far. But uh, it shows that the alliance was divided about what to do. And the, tr the difficulty was that this all happened so quickly. The fact is that the Americans withdrew much, much faster, much more quietly than anybody ever expected it to happen. Well, yes, the Americans withdrew faster. And, but the, the, the big mistake was the Taliban uh, advance was also faster than the American uh, expected. They, the, the, the official date for the end of the operation was September 11, 20 years after the attack uh, of, against America. It was launched from somehow from Afghanistan, from Osama bin Laden hiding in Afghanistan. And, but this is happening a month before, and the collapse is here under our eyes. And it shows again that uh, uh, not only mistakes were made during the last 20 years by the United States and their allies, but even in the last few months, they were not able to understand what was going on. It's that, I mean, La Repubblica is describing this as the endless war. Um, we have to think that actually this has been going back far, far longer than 20 years. I mean, your time in Kabul was when? I was in Kabul in 1993 with the déjà vu of what's happening now. It was the the fall of Kabul after the withdrawal of another empire, the United, the, the, the Soviet Union, which left uh, a government uh, allied with, with Moscow with their own uh, regular forces. With they were beaten in a matter of years in that case, not of months or weeks, uh, by the Mujahideen, the, the, the rebels. Uh, among them, the Taliban were one of the factions. But at the time, there were many different factions, many clans, many tribal forces, uh, some of them more democratic, more moderate. Uh, and it's, it's perhaps if I was uh, the director of the CIA today, I would put my money after the withdrawal on these uh, uh, clan, these tribes uh, who are not all disappeared to try to fight the Taliban in the future. Uh, let's move on to something Italian straight to home. I mentioned it a moment ago when we first said hello, which was Ferragosto. It is the, the moment, the peak moment of, of, of the Italian summer, mid-August. It's happening today. Um, if you were in Italy right now, uh, Enrico, and not sitting under a cloud here in London, where would you, where would you be sitting and what would you be ordering? 
<laughs> well, you know, I, I used to spend my summers in uh, Riviera Romagnolo, on the Adriatic Sea, near the city of Rimini, uh, a very popular place for vacations in Italy. And uh, the tradition there is for Ferragosto to have a big lunch, um, usually not by the seaside, but somehow on a, on a hill, a few miles from the from the sea, where perhaps it's less hot. Uh, speaking of heat, uh, uh, this has been a very hot summer. Italy had uh, re registered the record heat uh, um, in Europe ever, 48.8 uh, degrees in Sicily, but it's been hot uh, all over. I would be eating tagliatelle with ragu, which is a typical uh, dish from my region, and maybe drinking uh, quite a lot of wine. I thought you know, right, let's bring in Chandra Kurt here, because she knows she knows her stuff when it comes to an Italian wine, and you're in Italiari on this week. Um, Chandra, the, the, the festival of Ferragosto, do people suddenly start to order quite magnificent bottles at this stage, or is it just too hot to, to dive into a big red with your tagliatelle ragù? Well, the tagliatelle ragù will, will knock you out completely with 40 degrees <laughs> and tagliatelle. You do a big sleep after lunch, but, um, but um, it, it is very hot. And, and the beautiful thing is that Ferragosto is like, for Italy, is like after Christmas, it's the most important holiday. So everybody runs to the beach, you know, shops are closed and you just have holidays. And, and, and when you think about beach, fish, hot sand, then I don't see more red wines. You know, it's all easy. It's really the holiday wines that they're, they're always good. It doesn't really matter what you drink because you're relaxed and, and the wine tastes immediately better. So I will go for something white, light, like a Malvasia Bianca or a Pinot Grigio. But, and I even will there, you know, I know I shouldn't say this, but maybe put a little bit ice in it because when it's so hot, you know, it gets warm immediately. Okay. Enrica, where does Ferragosta come from? Well, it comes from 2000 years ago, from the Emperor Augustus uh, at the time of the Roman Empires. We were speaking about empires uh, defeated uh, in Afghanistan before that that was another empire. Uh, the word comes from Feria Augusti, the vacation, the holiday of Augustus. Uh, he was the first to decide uh, to give uh, the workers, to give the people, uh, actually at first a few days off, uh, and then it became one day off uh, uh, at the beginning, at the, in the middle of August, in the hottest month of the year in Italy, a little bit of rest, uh, holidays, there were feasts, there were celebrations. Uh, I'm sure there was something going on inside the Colosseum uh, as well. And it started with, you know, eating, drinking, uh, wine was available back then too, uh, white wine, red wine, and uh, it has been going on since then. And uh, it's amazing that uh, Italians, you know, when they travel abroad, they, or they, they know that I'm in London, they say, so how are people celebrating Ferragosto, which sometimes it does not fall on a Sunday. And um, in Italy is a national holiday. But uh, so I tell them it's a regular day in the rest of the world. And they cannot believe it. <laughs> um, you've actually decided to choose this, this, this day when nothing happens, apart from eating tagliatelle and going to sleep, um, as, as the setting for, 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 for a crime novel that you've written, where, where more than nothing happens. In fact, everything happens. Well, yes, I mean, Ferragosto is the title of my of my last uh, uh, novel uh, uh, that takes place uh, exactly in Romania with a lot of things happening, including uh, a hunt for uh, Mussolini's treasure. Mussolini was also from uh, Romania, from that region. And 
um, knowing the, that the, the, the way he exaggerated Italy's power during World War II has a, a little bit to do with the character of the people of that region that has been uh, shown to the world by the great Federico Fellini in his movies. Enrico Franceschini, thank you so much for joining us on Monaco on Sunday. You're listening to Monaco on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson, on Ferragosto, the 15th of August 2021. Let's head now to Finland to hear from our Helsinki correspondent, Petri Bertsov. Good morning, Petri. Good morning, Emma. And speaking of Ragu and Tagliatelle, <laughs> I just had some last night. I happen to be at an Italian-Finnish-Iranian uh, wedding, or actually, actually, it's the post-wedding celebrations now. But you know how these things work; they just never, what? never end. Actually, I don't know how a Finnish-Italian-Iranian wedding works. Just take us through it. <laughs> well, let's just say that there's a lot of uh, dancing, there's a lot of spicy food, there's a lot of uh, mozzarella, ricotta, uh, but, then, but then there's also sauna and swimming in the cold Baltic Sea. So that's about it. And lots of booze. I can't imagine. That combination sounds like we might be calling for an ambulance pretty time soon. But, but tell, us, tell us what news. Once you've emerged uh, with a belly full of ricotta and wine from the sauna and the swim, um, you've, been, you've, have, you've had a moment to have a look at what's happening in the papers where you are. Yes, I have. I, I have. So the biggest news right now in Finland is uh, related to the true Finns, uh, the sort of populist far-right uh, party that is one of the biggest political parties in, in, in Finland. And they've just elected a new uh, party leader, actually, uh, last evening. So um, the background to this story is that uh, the true Finns, sort of, they've, they've only been in government once before. And once they entered the government, uh, you know, what happens often with these populist parties is that then they have to compromise. And the party actually split up last time that it was in the government. And the hardline faction was the one that remained, but they, they, they're so hardline that they were never, you know, nobody wanted to form a government with them. So that hardline faction has now for, uh, elected a new party leader, for the first time a female leader, um, a woman called Rika Purra. She was elected almost unanimously, and um, the sort of the theory is that, that she will make the party's image a bit softer, um, more, you know, she's more willing to compromise maybe, uh, but the jury is out, you know, she's also, she has the same sort of politics, the anti-immigration politics, she's anti-Euro, she wants Finland to leave the Eurozone, so not exactly a moderate in, in my eyes. No, and, and this is actually the direction that the party has been travelling for, for such a long time. I mean, when we talk about hardline, how loud, how loud, of, loud a voice do they have? You know, they, they do have a loud voice. I think they, they're pulling at about 20%. So, you know, we're talking, you know, it, it's, I, I believe it's the second biggest party, according to the um, opinion polls at the moment in Finland. So a major power broker also um, in Finnish politics. So, you know, the fact whether or not they can, no, somebody wants to partner with them and form a government, it's, it's one of the key decisions in, in Finnish politics in years to come. Um, let's move on to another story about battery factories. I mean, what's what? <laughs> bring us bring us the latest battery news, please, Petri. Yeah, well, this is what all the M24 listeners have been waiting to hear. So, so Finland seems to be Finland and Sweden seem to be becoming these like hubs of battery production. You know, of course, with the sale uh, of um, electronic uh, vehicles uh, skyrocketing around the world, they they need batteries. And I'm actually I I was just on a 
three-day road trip in northern Sweden and Finland and, and went to check out some of these sites where the battery factories will be will be built. So, so there is a major, they call it a gigafactory um, in, in uh, Sweden, in the Swedish town of Skellefteå. But then what was announced just the other day was that in the Finnish town, uh, western Finnish town of Vasa, a Norwegian company, Freyer Battery, will, will uh, start building a battery factory. And that comes... That news follows um, similar news in April when a British company, Johnson, uh, Johnson Matthey, announced they, they are building a, a battery factory. Um, so it seems to, be, seems to be the new trend now here in the Nordic countries. What is, it that's, what is it that's leading to these battery factories all being built here? Well, this is the very question I put to them because it just doesn't sound logical, but, but it actually is. So to build these batteries, you need raw materials such as lithium and nickel, and they are to be found in in, in northern Finland, in northern Russia, in northern Norway. So so they are, you know, they want to build these factories close to where the raw materials are. And the second point is that, of course, they want to be producing these um, batteries in a in an environmentally friendly way. So they need renewable energy to power the plants that build these batteries. So you know, you you will have a lot of wind power. Um, solar power and, and, and hydro hydropower in, in Sweden and Finland. So that helps too. Finally, Petri, um, we're we are sort of like we're trying to be a bit COVID free this week because because we're trying to sort of forget it. It's the holidays. We're pret- yeah. pretending it's we're not in the middle of pandemic. Um, not the case in Finland. No, not not the case. So so maybe somebody wants to shut their ears for for a while. But this is such an interesting news. I I just had to pick up on this because I mean Finland has been. Um, seen as a, as, a, as a COVID success story. You know, our infection rates have remained some of the lowest in, in the Western world, and we've kept the society relatively open. Um, and now with the Delta variant, you know, infections are surging again, and the government has decided they will start vaccinating 12 to 15-year-olds in schools, but they left it to these uh, young kids to decide for themselves. And that has made them just really, really... Um, you know, a, a target for um, the anti-vax movement in Finland. And we've, this was just in the news yesterday that these anti-vax campaigners have started uh, sort of, uh, maybe attacking is too strong of a word, but, you know, have, have entered schools and have started sort of uh, brainwashing these young kids that, hey, don't take this uh, vaccine. So this just, you know, it's an interesting piece of news. You wouldn't expect this in a country like Finland. Petri Bursov, thank you so much. I'll let you go and recover from that wedding. It's uh, just coming up to 10.50 in Zurich, 9.50 here in London. You with Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson. Joining me still, Chandra Kurt in uh, Dufourstrasse 90, keeping the fires burning for us on Monocle on Sunday in the in the Zurich Monocle studio. And here in London, we have uh, Letika Burke as well, the journalist. Uh, now, I think, Chandra, I want you to cover your ears now because... Um, Latika was telling us about a little bit, wanted to tell us a little bit about a, a booze-free bar. Chandra, I'll be asking mm. you to brace yourselves for a reaction in a minute. But tell us, tell us all about this, Latika. Where have you spotted it? Well, Chandra might not be able to escape this booze-free bar because um, this booze-free bar called the Virgin Mary originated in, of all places, Ireland. Um, and they're having such success that they're expanding and going global. Their first destination is, not really surprisingly, a shopping centre in Abu Dhabi, Emma, Um, and they hope to expand into my country, Australia, and into America and more broadly across the Middle East. And part of the reasoning, of course, is um, not just uh, in the Muslim countries, of course, uh, an alcohol-free pub makes sense, but... We know that millennials don't like drinking alcohol as much as generations before them. So an alcohol-free bar uh, could certainly have a right market. But whether 
Um, there's a, g- a good comment in, in here from a, a professor of economics at Dublin City University um, saying that one in five Irish adults don't actually drink uh, alcohol, despite the reputation now Irish friends enjoy. Um, but he really doubts whether there's a market for pubs that are entirely non-alcoholic as opposed to drinks on the market uh, that are non-alcoholic and can be sold in venues that primarily lure their clientele in with the, the promise of a, a tipple. Chandra, may I scrape you off the floor and ask for your reaction to this devastating news? <laughs> well, um, let's see. It, <laughs> no, it, it, it really reconfirms that I think I don't understand the human race at all. And uh, and, and also the, the human motivation, why to do something and to pretend it's something and it's not what it is. So, so you know, you can create a bar, it can be a, a juice bar, it can be... It's just, uh, you, 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 how do you say, you deceive the eye by putting drinks in a bottle that looks like a wine bottle, but it's not wine, it just looks the same. So, you know, I don't know, I suppose, uh, if you have a religion that you don't drink alcohol, I fully understand. If you have a health issue, I fully understand. But 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 why to drink um, wine that is no wine? So, so, so there's no bottles of alcohol-free wine popping up in the court household anytime soon? No, there will always be because I need to know what people drink. So I will always <laughs> taste and, and, and find out. But, but um, you know, the, the, the beauty about the alcohol is also that, that the reaction it has on us, it, it relieves our mind, it puts us in new states. It may be, it may be let us be somebody we don't there to be without without the, the little help of wine, and uh, and I actually enjoy this this state tremendously. I bet I've, I've, never, I've never heard someone be so poetic in describing the state of drunkenness. I shall borrow that, Chandra, if you don't mind. That was beautiful. Chandra, you have actually sold it quite a bit, and everyone's saying drink less and you know don't don't misbehave. And I mean, do you do you ever find do you find many poetic states taking place in Zurich? Oh, this is a tricky question. (laughs) How poetic does it get? Zurich is not, in my opinion, Zurich is a a wonderful functional place. It's it's why why I'm here. It's like a clock. You know, Zurich is really, it's a ticking clock with all kinds of elements that help. And, um, you know, poetry, you go to Italy, you you go maybe to France, you go to to other places. So, So Zurich is, it's maybe not the most poetic place. Certainly not uh, London. I think there's a, um, an article in one of the papers today saying that local people in Soho, in the centre of the capital, have gone, have just been so fed up by the fact that, yes, we've opened our terraces up in a beautiful way to allow people to sit outside healthily, enjoy the summer, enjoy not getting infected, enjoy boosting businesses. But if you live above one of these bars, that the Brits don't know how to stay. They, the Brits don't drink well, do they, Latika? You know, Emma, I have to say, I find drinking culture much bigger in Britain than in Australia. And I think people think it might be the reverse. But what I find in Britain is socialising almost has to take place around some form of alcohol. And also you're really good day drinkers. Yeah, um, we we're really good day drinkers. I don't find in Australia we get on the booze that early all the time or is it as consistently as the British enjoy doing it? I, I wouldn't disagree with you at all. It's 9.54 here in London. Let's get some culture news. Matt Wolfe is a theatre critic for the International New York Times and he joins me on the line from Edinburgh. Good morning. How is Edinburgh, Matt? Well, it's it's overcast, but you know, if it weren't overcast, Emma, it wouldn't be Edinburgh. But uh, <laughs> it's it's very nice to be here. Uh, I'm here for four days for the festival. Obviously, uh, there was no festival last year for reasons we all know. So this year, uh, the festival is kind of inching back into life. I would say. What's what's caught your eye? Well, um, there's a play by Andrew Walsh, who's the Irish writer who wrote Disco Pigs and the musical Once called Medicine with Donald Gleeson uh, set in a hospital 
uh, and it's about the the sort of breakdown of the central character whom he plays, but informed with a lot of comedy uh, as well. There's a very sweet show called I, Elvis, uh, which is about a Scottish woman who's obsessed with Elvis Presley and wants nothing more than to make it herself to Graceland eventually. And then there's a very sweet little dance piece for half an hour called We Came to Dance, All One Word, uh, which is addressing issues of climate change and sustainability in the form of choreography and music. So those are a couple of the things so far. And the atmosphere, you say it's smaller, but does, is, I mean, the, Edinburgh knows how to throw a party more than anybody, arguably. I mean, is there a sense that everyone's just glad to be back together? or is, How are people playing this this year? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's very well put. Of course, the thing is that Scotland only relaxed its restrictions as of last Monday, uh, August 9th. So there is very much this sense of people being kind of let out uh, back into the world. Uh, it's, there's an odd disconnect, though, between the theatres themselves, which are practicing pretty uh, dramatic social distancing, and the pubs, the cafes, the bars, the restaurants, which are all packed. So uh, <laughs> it's, it's sort of been happening in two different worlds at the same time. Two different worlds as well down in, back down in London. The West End is opening plays left, right and centre and closing yep. them left, right and centre as well because yep. of COVID. I know. It's crazy. I, I don't know how theatre producers in London or anywhere else really, for that matter, we'll see what happens on Broadway in September, can exist at the moment because no sooner have you opened than you close again. Uh, and this, as you say, is happening. Uh, very little social distancing in the London theatres I've been to recently. Uh, I was at uh, the press night on Wednesday of, of the, the stage debut of Lily Allen, the singer-songwriter. And, I mean, people were trampling all over each other to get to their packed stall seats. So it's as if the pandemic never happened. Matt Wolf, we'll let you get on with and enjoy the festivities up in uh, in Edinburgh. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, just right. listening to that, Latika. I mean, it, people are, are going crazy for the theatre up in London, but but Andrew Lloyd Webber's having a real struggle. Yeah, interesting listening to what Matt was saying there about not knowing how the West End will survive, because that's exactly what Andrew Lloyd Webber is saying about his new uh, production, Cinderella, and he has basically gone to Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor here in the UK begging for money, similar to the the bailout given to Broadway producers, saying if he can't get this up in the next week or so, this production is going to Broadway and won't open in the West End. Um, Of course, Lloyd Webber is one of Britain's richest men, so maybe not too much sympathy here, but this article in in the Sunday Times today does include a fairly fascinating detail that he's actually had to remortgage uh, presumably one of his many houses to (laughs) to try and finance um, this production that has been pulled plagued with pandemic issues, testing issues, obviously closure issues and coronavirus restriction issues right from from where to go. Shows you what's happening. Right, I promised you at the end, Chandra, back with you please. You were you were you were chance with what was it again to, to cook for Latika, can you remember? Or Latika maybe you can remind us. We're doing the wine quiz now. Salt and pepper prawns, white ground pepper, lemongrass chili. And red wine. Chandra, we've got 30 seconds before 30 our programme fin- okay. finishes. You, so. you were in Puglia, so you, you know very well the Primitivo uh-huh. grape. You need, you need a seductive uh, red, ripe, jammy red wine with not too many tannins. But I will suggest to go to Sicily, take mm-hmm. from Donna Fugada Sherazad, it's such a beautiful name. The label also looks good, and it's a pure Nero d'Avola, and it will make your, your nice and hot dish uh, just uh, give it the velvety touch around.
We'll have to leave it there. Chandra Kurt in Dufourstrasse 90. Thank you for holding the fort so magnificently today. And a big thanks to the rest of my guests, Latika Burke here in London, Petri Burtsov, Enrico Franceschini and Matt Wolfe. The programme was produced by Marcus Hippie. Our studio manager in Zurich was Desiree Bandley and Laura Hole was looking after the sound here in London. I'm Emma Nelson. Monocle on Sunday is back next week. But until then, goodbye. Thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your weekend. <laughs>